you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 as we continue our study there. Now we'll read verses 1 through 11. Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he says, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So starting with verse 3, we read this statement. For we who have believed enter that rest. Before I get to anything else, I want to emphasize the simplicity and the clarity of this promise. We who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed enter that rest. You can overcomplicate things in trying to find out or see if you're really a Christian You can go back further and further and further and question your motives and second-guess yourself. You can begin navel-gazing and focusing only on what you feel and what you think. And batteries can fail you. You can focus so much on the things that you think should accompany the life of a Christian. But this promise still stands in its beautiful simplicity. For we who have believed enter that rest. You really do. You enter the rest of God. Those who believe enter God's rest. It is a promise. It is sure. Many people I've interacted with, they're anxious, They're fearful, and many people very close to me have gone through seasons of their lives where they doubt their salvation. And it's not so much that they doubt that Jesus has the power to save, and it's not that they necessarily doubt the goodness and love of God. They just can't stop worrying that they might have deceived themselves. And this passage offers us the simple clarification, and it ought to grip us and drive us to take action with the confidence that is available for us. For we who have believed enter that rest. Now, there is an important question here that you have to ask yourself. Do I really believe? But if you do... You enter that rest. Just as a side note, we do need to expand our minds when it comes to the terms that the Bible itself uses to talk about salvation. Most of us have heard, you know, I'm saved, you know, I'm 
bound for the promised land, I'm going to heaven, you know, I'm a Christian, all these terms, but this is one that you very rarely hear. I have entered God's rest, or I will enter God's rest. The Bible uses a full range of terms to talk about what it means to be with the Lord. And this is one that is, has become, for me, very precious. To enter God's rest. Maybe that's a helpful question for you, maybe as you're questioning yourself. And I think we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says. Make your calling and election sure. And one of the ways you can do that is by asking, have I really entered God's rest? Have I really entered God's rest? Maybe this is an important question for you today. And as we begin to unfold this promise and look at how the author proves his point, Just keep that in your minds. This recurring question, have I entered God's rest? So there's two sides of the promise, and this is what I want you to note. For we who have believed entered that rest. And so if you were here last week, um, or if you weren't, I will just summarize what the the message was over, and that was verses 1 through 2. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And then he says, and we believe, we who believe enter that rest. So I've said before in different occasions, and I'm going to say it here because I think in saying it this way, it will stick in your minds. The Bible does say different things to different people. And by that, I do not mean that two people can go to the same text and get different things that are in disagreement. What I do mean is that depending on where you are or what you're struggling with or where your confidence rests, the same passage or the same promise will collide with your heart differently. What the Bible wants us to have is eager and joyful confidence that we will enter that rest. But that confidence cannot be arrogant presumption. Paul even says to the people who presume on God's kindness, you, don't, you do not even know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when His righteous judgment shall be revealed. So the promise hits our heart differently depending on where we are. It's the same truth. So you may be in camp one where... You love the Lord, you're delighting in your salvation, and you're eagerly anticipating His return, and you're working as much as you can to put to death the deeds of the flesh so that you will live. And what this promise says to you is you enter that rest. But if you're in camp two, and you say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I've got that down pat. And... Your life exhibits continual rebellion, open, unrepentant sin, and you don't care necessarily that God has told you that this lifestyle or these decisions don't match up with the child of God, and you say, but I'm saved. He'll forgive me. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin in those cases. If you persist in unbelief, you do not enter God's rest. You are not united by faith with those who listen. And that's very severe. And it's very hard to hear. It's hard even to say because of what that means for the status of modern evangelicalism. But that is the truth. But where the author wants to leave us and leave his hearers is with this confidence. For we who have believed enter that rest. So as we move on, the, the, the positive side of the promise is, is what is supposed to linger in our mind. And that gracious invitation, that, that gracious offer of God to those who would hear to enter His rest is still open. As we talked about last week, the door is not yet shut. The promise of entering His rest still stands. It's still available. Don't harden your hearts if you hear His voice today.
So the author intends this passage to clarify and shake us free from self-deception and the lies of the devil and of this world and tell you to begin to fear lest any of you should have failed to reach it. But also God works through this scripture for those who are downcast and discouraged and who are just so dead tired. And you don't even know why. To show you rest. Or to remind you of it. And to invite you to look beyond the horizon of this life to that rest. And to long for it. So this is how the promise works. If you believe, you enter that rest. It's very simple. And for those of you in this room who, after everything that we've said in our study of Hebrews, are still questioning, do I really believe in Jesus? Have I given my life over to him as my Lord? Do I trust in this promise of entering his rest? Do I really believe that? The simplicity of this promise is you don't have to go through a long line of theological education to become a Christian. The offer is simple. If you believe, you enter that rest. What distinguished the believing community within Israel and the unbelieving community is simply that. They were not, those who failed to enter the promised land were not united by faith with those who listened. Faith is what unites us to the Lord. But we have to ask some more questions because we could just say, okay, those who believe enter that rest. Great. Amen. Let's close in a prayer and take up an offering. Right? And then we'd be done. Close our Bibles. Go home. There are important questions to ask about this promise. First, believe what? Those who believe enter this rest. Believe what? Second, what does belief look like? That's a very important question. What does real belief look like? And then third, does he mean enter that rest now or at the end or some other time? And then lastly, what is rest? Why should we ask these questions? Why can't we just leave it at the statement, those who believe enter that rest because if you move on in the verses we already read at the beginning, the author himself begins to answer these questions. What is the nature of this promise? What is the nature of belief? What does it mean to believe? What is the rest of God? When do we enter it? That's what the author does in the following verses. And we will, Lord willing, move all the way through to verse 11. So, have you entered God's rest? Let's let the author read us and answer that question for us. Then he quotes again Psalm 95. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter God's wrath. The author resumes his exposition of Psalm 95. We read that in our scripture reading time last week. And he demonstrates to us again that he is not getting new revelation from God. It is not too much of a stretch to say that if you have a good and thorough understanding of the Old Testament that you could say everything that the author says here. There's nothing inherently new. There are deep insights, but he builds his case completely on his understanding of the Old Testament which the Spirit helps him in and the Spirit guides him, but none of this is just new, random stuff. It's all based on the Old Testament. He's an exegete. That's a fun big word I'm going to give you today. To exegete the text or to exposit the text. He's going to the Bible and mining it. He's digging He's looking at every little thing. He builds this entire theology, as we said in the Sunday school hour, on one word. One word. And what my hope is for you as a pastor is to demonstrate that you can have this same type of relationship with the Bible. That you can go and you can mine it for all that is worth to go again and again and again and get what's there. 
You want to hear from the Lord? Do you want to speak to others with such divine force and life-giving power? Your family, your friends, your neighbors, then know the Bible. I can't emphasize that enough. Every single word of God is more important to you than your food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. More important than getting your breakfast in the morning, your lunch at midday, and your dinner in the evening is the word of God. Young people, are you working now to set a trajectory for your life where your Bible is seen by others and seen by your parents as more important to you than food? Begin early. It begins paying massive dividends later on. The return and reward is greater the earlier you start treating your Bible as more important to you than your food. So how does this all relate? Why am I taking this time to talk about the Bible? It's part of what belief looks like. That's proved by verse 12. We won't have time to get to verse 12 today. But the whole point of calling us to belief is because God has spoken. And He hasn't just spoken in some vague sense for us to access by meditating. He's spoken very clearly, very objectively in His Word. What belief looks like is to believe what He has objectively said. So do you treat what God has said about Himself like the very condition for entering the promise? For we who believe, i.e. believe what God has said, enter that rest. This is what He said. We have nothing else. Hang your very life on every single word of God. I remember where I was, what I was thinking, what I was feeling when I realized, oh, the word of God is true. And I can build my life on its words. I don't know if that's when I became a believer, but that was a watershed experience for me when I realized, oh, this changes everything. In Hebrews 4.2, which we've already read twice now, they were not united by faith to those who listened. What are we listening to? What God says, what He has clearly communicated about Himself. This is why the author begins Hebrews by saying, many times in many ways in the past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but now He has spoken to us by His Son. It's the final, definitive revelation of God. If you go back and listen to those sermons, read that passage over and over. It's clear. Have you listened? Have you taken heed to the words of the Son of God? Can you say with the psalmist, with David, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you? Hidden. It always interested me that David chooses to use this word, hidden. Like why would you hide something that you want other people to know and you want to think about? The idea is that you've buried it at the deepest part of your heart. There, if someone were to dig through to find out what you're all about, that finally when they get to the bottom of it all, there is the Word of God. Have you entered that rest through belief? Is the Word of God your delight? But in citing Psalm 95, he's not just showing us what belief in the promise looks like. He's not just showing us that he is treasuring every word of God and that that is what belief is. He's answering a difficult question. And I apologize, but you do have to put your thinking caps on today, okay? The question, which we have already alluded to, is this. What does God's rest mean? When we say those who believe enter that rest, what is he talking about? A few weeks ago, I took an entire message and talked exclusively about the kingdom of God. 
And I made the argument that in the times that the author repeats this idea of rest, that what he's talking about is the kingdom of God. And that's the main term that we should use to think about what God has promised for those who trust in him, the kingdom of God. But this citation of Psalm 95 gives us a little bit more clarity. It gives us a subtle nuance of this rest of God. It's an older term. It's much older than the kingdom of God as a phrase didn't show up until much, much later. Rest, God's rest, might be the oldest term the Bible uses to talk about what God has for those who trust in him. So in bringing us back to this crime scene, like several months ago, I talked about this crime scene, right? Where God has brought his people all the way to the border of the promised land. And Moses sends 12 spies in to spy out the promised land. And 10 come back with a bad report Two, Joshua and Caleb say, no, we can go in and take the land. And the people listen to the 10 spies and they reject God's promise to enter the promised land. And that's the crime. So the author takes us back to that crime scene. And he asks us this question, what rest is he talking about? Is it just the promised land? Is that the only thing he's talking about here? Those who believe enter his rest. So he's, the author is speaking to Hellenistic Jews or Greeks who uh, are, are Jews who lived in Greek culture rather. And he's saying, well, if you want to be restored to the land, if you want to get back to the promised land, this is what you got to do. So is he just talking about the land? And the reason he quotes it is this. God says, even before they enter Canaan, you shall not enter my rest. Would it have been appropriate for God to call Canaan before Joshua goes over and takes over all of the land to call that place, the place where paganism and child sacrifice existed, would it be appropriate for God to call that place his rest? No. Because it hadn't happened yet. It hadn't been restored. He hadn't set his name there yet. Certainly he does believe, mean that those who disbelieve cannot enter the promised land, but it has to have a deeper meaning. And here's how the author explains it, picking it up at the end of verse 3. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he has said, they shall not enter my rest. What the author is saying is the rest that he cuts the people off from because of their disbelief is something that existed far before the promised land. The rest or repose of God that he consecrates on the seventh day after creation. This word, although, although his works carries the sense, and yet, even though God uses the phrase, my rest, to refer to something in the present for Israel, you're not going to get to enter the promised land. A point of clarification is being made. That God's works, in the most fundamental sense, were finished from the foundation of the world. And his rest the author is showing us here, must refer to something more than just the promised land. And so he uses his analysis of the creation account. We've already seen that the creation account is in his mind. He goes back to the seventh day and sees what God did and how he sanctified the seventh day. He's saying that the Sabbath wasn't a completely new idea or a new creation. The seventh day was set apart or made holy because God himself finished his work and returned or went back to his state of repose, his rest, his peace. So in a sense, before the curse of sin, before the head crusher was promised to come and destroy the serpent, before all of that, God makes the Sabbath for man, according to Jesus, and sets it apart and invites the man and the woman to join him in his rest. 
So this is really, if you think about it, the oldest term and the oldest gospel invitation before sin even entered the picture. God is inviting his creation to enter his rest with him. How would human history have gone if Adam and Eve have not sinned? They would not have persisted in the state that they were. The idea was not for them to just continue to exist in Eden and everything be happy and fine. The idea was that they would go out and cultivate and change the world and submit it to God's order that they had seen in Eden and enter and continue to enter God's rest and make progress into understanding who God was through that rest that he had invited them to by sanctifying the Sabbath. Sin and their eating of the fruit is a rejection of that invitation. Don't you see? The serpent said, it won't kill you. And when the woman saw that it was desirous to the eyes and desirous to make one wise, she took of it. She's basically deciding, they together are deciding, we don't trust God's way of bringing us to fullness and bringing us to our own realization of what God has done for us. We'll take this fruit that God has told us not to take of. We'll find fulfillment a different way. So it's the same. It's this history repeating itself. Israel rejecting God's offer of giving them a place to rest is basically an echo of what happened in the garden. No, we're not going to go into your rest. We're not going to do it your way. We'll do it our way. So then this answers the question for us. What does he mean by God's rest? Those who believe, for we who have believed, enter that rest. It's the same state of perfect peace and harmony and happiness that God invites Adam and Eve to persist in through the Sabbath. For each of us, we have a place or a thing that we like to do where we find peace. All of you, without exception. Maybe that is a, your favorite hiking trail, right? And you go on that hiking trail and you see the trees and you see the leaves change through the seasons. And that place for you is the place where you find peace. Maybe it's an early morning coffee while it's raining, reading your favorite book in a booth, looking out on the rain. Maybe it is a favorite table at a restaurant. You go there and things are just right in the world. That place, that existence of peace and harmony for you, all of us have had those experiences. And that's a helpful way to think of what it means for God to invite us into his rest. That place for God. That most infinite, perfect, beautiful place of rest and peace and happiness God's delight in God himself and joy in himself, in the Son and in the Spirit. That place of peace and celebration and happiness, that is what he is inviting you into. It's not just that he's giving us an offer to forgive us of sin so that we avoid hell. He's inviting you into his rest. This is exactly what Jesus prays for in John 17. If you want to turn there, you can. John 17, verses 20 through 24. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So he's praying for you and me, okay? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me father i desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where i am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world when jesus prays the answer is yes 
Okay? So if you have believed, this is what is going to be fulfilled in you. And it breaks the mind to try and think about what that all means. That we would be united in some mysterious sense with God and see and behold and even receive the glory of God in us. These light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We, we run out of words to talk about how magnificent this is. This eternal repose or peace or happiness and joy of God. You're being pulled in, invited in, transformed so that you can even sustain it and be a part of that rest. Have you entered the rest of God? Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter that rest, and those who formerly rejected the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is the crux of the argument. This is how the author builds his case exegetically, from the text. He's not just saying things because they sound good or because they work together. He's building his entire case, as I said, on this one word. He hangs his entire explanation on this. And he actually does this frequently, and Jesus does it as well. Every word was so important to them. And this theme is going to continue to come back up because one of the questions we asked at the beginning is this. What does belief look like? It means treating the Word of God as your very life. And it was the case for him. And he's explaining the promise of entering God's rest because of this one word that shows up in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Can you imagine being an Israelite hearing David write that song? This was the height of Israel's peace and prosperity and theological clarity. David was king. The temple's going to be built. The Philistines are being pushed back. God is the center. You know, things got better on the outside when it went over to Solomon, but the worship of God started to wane and they started to accumulate riches beyond imagination. But under David, God was the center. David was a man after God's own heart. So he's writing this psalm to be sung in the sanctuary today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Why, David? We're already in the promised land. Because there's a deeper, greater, more meaningful rest that is open to you. The promise open to you, even you Israelites living in the promised land to enter today. And if today you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So it must be something deeper. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David says there's still a rest that is available today. The invitation is open today for all who will listen. This answers the question, what does belief look like in a negative way? If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Belief is the opposite of hardening your heart. The voice here does not mean a personal or subjective sense of what God is leading you to do. Here, it can only mean the clear command of God's word and not rejecting it. And this is exactly what Israel did when they refused to enter the land. The good news came to them. God clearly speaks to him, to them. I'm taking you to this land. No. Hardening your heart means to disbelieve God's ability or willingness to keep his promise, especially when it comes to you. I'll say that again. Hardening your heart means to disbelieve God's ability or willingness to keep his promise, especially when it comes to you. Using that analogy, what would hardening your heart look like today? Here are some examples, and I, I, again, I want to say this in the most gentle way I know how. And this isn't me singling anyone out. This is me trying to use the word to critique us all, okay? 
When we hear his voice saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we respond, sure, I'll go to church. But I don't think I should have to make my entire life, everything in my life about the gospel. That seems really legalistic. When we hear his voice saying, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. We respond. But he's not being literal and he's not. He's just being figurative. So I shouldn't have to eliminate my eye or anything else, really, that makes my life more convenient if it causes me to sin. Really, he cares about what's going on in the heart, right? When we hear his voice saying, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, we respond, well, I don't necessarily need to interact at that level with other Christians every day. I mean, I'll go to church and even prayer meeting, but... I can't deal with people every day. I can't be around people every day. I can't have that degree of interaction with other people every day. Surely he's not asking me to do that. When we hear his voice saying, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, we respond, but the Bible's hard to read. And the kids don't sit still while we're trying to read it together at family t- at dinner time with the family. Or I fall asleep every time I try to read in the morning or in the evening. When we hear his voice saying, make disciples of all nations, we respond, well, it's a great thing that we give a little bit of funds to the convention and make sure all nations are reached. I'm glad I don't have to uproot my life. And have a wholesale change of everything. Everything I know, everything I love. And go to a distant land or city or to a different neighborhood or across the street to make disciples. Thank God for missionaries. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Have you entered that rest? This is what belief in the promise looks like. Faithfulness. Obedience. And he moves on. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from him, from his. So the author pushes his case a little bit further. He looks back at the conquest of Canaan under Joshua and said, if that's what God really meant by his rest and them possessing the land, then he would have not spoken through his prophet David saying today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Then he answers another one of our questions. This is one that we asked at the beginning. Is this rest of God only available after death and at the end of the age? Is that all he's talking about? As we discussed in our message on the kingdom of God, there is, in fact, a massive future event, a catastrophe that is going to happen with the return of Christ and judgment day. It's going to happen. And if that isn't a massive feature in your heart, if that doesn't drive your emotions and steer your thoughts, then you need to do a lot of work so it can be. I don't know how people function on an emotional level dealing with the death and destruction and decay in the world without realizing and hoping in the return of Christ in judgment. I don't know how you can do it. But at the same time, the kingdom is already here in the hearts of people who love to obey God's word and to keep his commands. So too, with rest, this other term that we have, the author here proves that this rest is not just some future reality because he uses the word today. Today, enter that rest. If you hear the promise today, don't harden your hearts. Enter that rest today. 
He says, he who has entered God's rest. And for we who believe enter, present tense, that rest. This is how I would like to describe it. And I don't know if this is legitimate. I think it's helpful for myself. Let's say you're driving from one city to another which we did frequently when we were serving in Shreveport, we would drive from Shreveport back to Fort Worth where Beth's parents were or to Greenville, Texas where my parents were. It was uh, three and a half hours or so to Greenville and about four and a half hours to Fort Worth. And so as we would drive, we would be in Louisiana and, you know, for, for a little bit and then we would cross the state line and all that tells you that you've crossed the straight line is a sign and that the roads get a little bit better right? But you don't feel necessarily any major change. Like, it's not like the sky changes color or your, uh, the, the trees are a different color or things look drastically different. But you are now out of Louisiana and into Texas. That happened, the similar thing happens in the border between Idaho and Washington. So have you entered God's rest? It may not look like your final destination. It might not be the perfect repose and happiness of God that you have entered, but you are on the way. And it begins to look like it. And you begin to trust that, yes, I have left the kingdom and dominion of darkness and been transferred to the kingdom of His marvelous light. It does happen. It is an experience that you can have today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We're not all home yet. We're not, things are not as they ought to be. But in your heart, at an emotional level, in your soul, you can enter that rest. How does Jesus talk about this? He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He also says, whoever believes in me, out of, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And lastly, or two more, sorry. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's not just one day at the end of all things. I will give you rest today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If all of that doesn't make any sense to you, or if you barely have ever known that peace or that joy or that life, and the majority of your life is anxiety, frustration, depression, and anger, or if all those things are so easily taken away by trials when they come, then your emotional center is not in Christ. You have not entered that rest. And it's better for you, it's better for me to say that and say the truth that if you don't have any experience of this rest. And if you don't, it doesn't make any sense what I've just explained to you. You need to find the one who gives this rest. I want you to have this. And am I saying that if you become a Christian, that all of a sudden all your anxiety, fears, and frustrations go away? No. It just changes what you're afraid of. It changes what you're anxious about. It changes what makes you angry. It's a wholesale change of your emotions. But if we believe Jesus, then this really is an invitation open to you to know that life wellspring in your heart, to know that rest, to know that joy, to know that peace in your inner being. Trials may even increase and your ability to feel anxiety and fear might even be increased as we see in the Apostle Paul. But it's going to be different. Things will be different. And so he says, 
In verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Again, the author gives us a command and it overlays perfectly with 3.13. This is why we spent so much time over Hebrews 3.13. It intensifies it more. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is basically the same command, just reworded and folding in this idea of rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us together, plural, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one, so that none of us, so that no one among you may fall by the same sort of disobedience, by unbelief. This word strive is fascinating to me. Not because it's necessarily out of place for the author, but because it doesn't fit well with popular theology and church culture. We strive for so many things, brothers and sisters, but I don't know that our entering God's rest is one of them. Because we think and we've been taught that that's already secured, and it is, but then that means that we don't have to strive or work or eagerly live and obey in order to enter it. Here the author very clearly and singularly points out the one thing we ought to devote ourselves to and strive for. Strive to enter that rest. This word, I think, is probably built on the very changing of Jacob's name to Israel. Do you remember the story? Jacob is going back into his father's area, right? The place where um, it was promised. And he's coming back from marrying uh, the daughters of Laban. And he is afraid of his brother Esau. So he sends his camp on before him and he sleeps by the brook. And a man comes and attacks him and wrestles with him. And at the end of this encounter, God says to him, your name will now be Israel because you have striven with man and with God and have prevailed. So this very idea of striving and fighting even, wrestling, not letting go until you bless me, that is the heart of the people of God. Just a few points of application and we'll be done. First, I mentioned several commands of Jesus in asking, are we hardening our hearts? Are we listening to him? Do we hear his voice? So just to continue that, I would encourage you to reread at least one of the Gospels and or one of Paul's larger epistles and carefully pay attention to how you respond to the commands, the imperatives and if you explain it away. When you read a text and you realize my life isn't in line with that command, how does your heart respond? Do you do theological gymnastics and explain away why you don't have to obey it? Or do you respond with brokenness and sorrow and even joy saying, God has shown me his word. He's shown me what it means to believe. Give me the strength to obey. Pay attention to what happens in your heart when you read God's commands. That's the first one. Second, be honest about whether or not you know this divine rest. And I know there are many in this room who struggle mightily with depression and anxiety and fear. And I'm not saying if that is the case that you're not a Christian. But I am saying if you have never, ever known this peace and joy and rest of God then wouldn't it be worth your time to investigate and to ask, have I believed, have I truly believed in his promise to enter his rest? Because if I know nothing of rest, and if I've never known anything of rest at the heart level, then what benefit has it been to you? Investigate, ask the hard questions, be honest with yourself, and press into those that you know have entered that rest. And lastly, regardless 
of what your answer is to that question, strive, fight, wrestle to enter that rest. Here are several other places, several other texts. I'm just going to read these and let them rest on you as we conclude. Four other places that the New Testament uses this word. This is Jesus. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. This is Paul. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. This is part of what striving looks like, that it's by prayer that we strive together to make sure we all enter that final rest. Paul again. So, with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. This striving is not an individual discipline. Strive to build up the church. We are kept together as a community project. He will safely bring us together home and enter that rest. Strive to build up the church. You want to see a manifestation of the Spirit? You want to enter a deeper life and knowledge of God and a fellowship with His Son and a sense of that joy and rest and peace? Build up the church. And I'm not saying in the physical ways. That's not me trying to plead with you to give more in the offering plate. That's the spiritual sense of building up your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And lastly, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these very solid and amazing promises that we who believe enter your rest. I pray that we would be honest with ourselves and ask the question, have we really entered that rest? Do we know anything of what you have promised? I pray that we'd be honest, that we'd be eager, that we would strive to enter that rest today. And I pray for each person in this room, regardless of what you're working on their hearts to do, that they would not harden their hearts, but respond in faith. I pray that they would find someone would find me or find the person they came with and ask, how can I be saved? As we sing these songs and give this time of response, I pray for those who are mature in this place to pray earnestly, to strive together with the Apostle Paul and pray for those who are on the fence today. I pray that as we go out, that we would understand our lives and under this word to strive we would strive to enter your rest. I pray for those who don't know what's next in their life. Maybe they know you and they're trying to figure out what they should do. I pray that they would heed this command to strive to build up the church and either join here with us in this fellowship or somewhere else and commit to building up the church as part of their walk with you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.